0: Good morning, St. George's. Really excited to be with you this morning. If you get a Bible out to Hebrews chapter 10, if you haven't already, uh, please do that, as we'll be following along and tracking along verse by verse. Uh, It's quite a big chapter with a a lot of different concepts in it, so we're going to start right at verse 1. Again, that's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. So we see at verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So we see that at verse one, since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, the shadow is not the object itself. A shadow is a pale reflection And the good things to come, of course, is talking about Christ and the atonement that he brought um, through his sacrifice on the cross, which is the true form of these realities. So we see that the law prefigures what is to be fulfilled in Christ, which again is the true form. So the Old Testament law is not able to cleanse for all time. The law could not remove guilt um, from the people of the Israelites, and it could not give them permanent access to God. And specifically here, we're talking about the Levitical system of animal sacrifice in the Old Testament. And we're gonna see the author of the of the Epistle of Hebrews um, compare and contrast that with Christ's once for all sacrifice. So if we look to verse two and three, we see at verse two, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Again, talking about the animal sacrifices. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So again, these sacrifices were not able to cleanse the people once for all. These sacrifices were repeated again and again, and this really showed that they provided no lasting solution to the problem of sin. Instead, these animal sacrifices were a yearly reminder and a daily reminder, a public notice before God and before humanity that the people were still sinners and thus guilty and subject to condemnation because of their sin. It didn't solve the problem of sin. And we see the author to the Hebrews come to a conclusion at verse 4. And verse 4 states, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So, we come to this ultimate conclusion here where we see the inadequacy of the Old Testament sacrifices, and that's sharply expressed at verse 4. The author to the Hebrews continues to go on and contrast that with Christ's once for all sacrifice, and we've seen this theme throughout our journey through this epistle. So, if you take a look at verse 5 to 7, the author starts to contrast this. Consequently, When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So we see Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8, interpreted here to point to the replacement of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And also at verse 5, at the end of verse 5, we see the body prepared for me. And this is in reference to the humanity that's assumed by Christ um, in the incarnation. The author to the Hebrews continues to go on here. If We look at verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. So we see an idea. Although instituted by God in the Mosaic law, the Levitical system of animal sacrifice by itself was not the ultimate means willed by God to remove his people's sin permanently. The, the system of animal sacrifice did not finally remove guilt. It did not deal with the problem of sin. Rather, This system was given to point people to the only effectual sacrifice for sin, namely Jesus Christ and his atonement on the cross. So the Old Testament system is meant to push us and point us towards the cross. Again, at verse 1, it's a shadow. It's a shadow of the true form of these realities, which we would find in the cross. At verse 9 and 10, We see at verse nine, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So we see at verse nine that Jesus is obedient through suffering, um, obedient to the Father's will, atoning for the sin through the sacrifice of his body, We also see at verse 10 the idea of being sanctified. And again, not all the time are we talking about the doctrine of sanctification, but specifically in Hebrews here, we can look at sanctified as being set apart, right? Being set apart or being consecrated, being made holy, made acceptable to God. So here and also at verse 14, the topic is not necessarily the whole process of sanctification, But instead, it refers to the once-for-all change in our status when we are united to Christ by faith. And in this way, we are separated from sin's pollution and qualified for the worship of God in his temple. Again, we are set apart for the Lord. We are set apart for him and qualified to come into his presence through Christ, who is our great high priest. And again, the author to the Hebrews continues to compare and contrast this the Old Testament Levitical system and the once for all sacrifice through Christ. Take a look at verse 11 with me. Verse 11 states, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Again, we already saw this conclusion at verse 4. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So he's continuing this idea. We see the Levitical priests, through their daily morning and evening sacrifices, no less than the yearly Day of Atonement, through these offerings, announced by the repetition, it, it again proved that it could not deal with the problem of sin. They could not take sin's guilt away. And the question is, did these Old Testament sacrifices have any atoning or forgiving value. And there is debate about this. Um, A great view of a reformer, John Calvin, says that these sacrifices were a symbol and pledge of real cleansing, which could not be accomplished permanently by animal sacrifices, but only ultimately by Christ's once-for-all sacrifice, right? Again, the true form of the reality is Christ's sacrifice on the cross, and the shadow is the Old Testament system. We see at verse 12, again a contrast. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So, in contrast to the Levitical priests who stood and whose work was never done, Christ sat down at the right hand of God. It's finished. His sacrifice paid the debt. And he sat down at the right hand of God showing that Jesus is a priest king, right? And at verse 13, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, his authority over all. So how does Christ atone for his people? If we look at verse 14, for by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, right? A single offering, contrasting with the repetition of the animal sacrifices. For by a single offering, Christ has perfected for all time, right? So perfected, he's cleansed us, he's washed us, he has made us complete, he's made us acceptable to God. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, those who are being set apart, those who are being made holy, those who are being consecrated. Christ's single sacrifice achieved the full forgiveness that animal sacrifices could never provide. His single offering results in the perfecting and sanctifying of those who find their salvation in Jesus. Throughout Hebrews, we see this word perfect, which expresses, again, consecration, qualifying priests and other worshipers to approach God's presence, in worship, we see that Christ's single sacrifice for sins has cleansed our consciences and has consecrated us as holy priests once for all and for all time. It's made us acceptable to God, that we can enter into God's presence now because Christ is the intercessor in which we can have a relationship and have a relationship with the Father and be able to come into his presence in the first place. If we take a look at verse 15 to 17, at verse 15, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Let's zero in on verse 16. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. This is an intimate reality, right? Into the depths of our being. What I want you to see is that salvation is all God. God puts his laws on our hearts. God writes them on on our minds. In fact, God gives us a new heart. God regenerates us. And God decides to cover our sin, and we see that in verse 17. I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Salvation, my friends, is all God. It's nothing in ourself. So we see these two quotations from Jeremiah 31, which we already had seen in back in Hebrews 8. These two quotations from Jeremiah 31 that are quoted here in Hebrews demonstrate that Christ's once for all sacrifice results both in the inner transformation of the believer and in the forgiveness of sin, which refers to justification. And the author to the Hebrews comes to a concluding point here at verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So we see God's commitment to remember their sins no more because of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice. His full and free forgiveness means that no further offering for sin is needed. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. Christ's single sacrifice ends all of the animal bloodshed in the Old Testament. So what does this mean? Well, we we see that in the Old Testament, through the Old Testament sacrifices and through the Levitical system, the people offered the best of what they had to God, right? They offered the best of what they had to God But now, God the Father offers the best of what he has to us. Namely, Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. This is the final reality of what Christ's sacrifice accomplishes. It's finished. And we must remember the gospel here. We must understand the deep reality of his sacrifice and what that means for us today. Well, through faith, through our faith, which alone... Is the instrument in which we are justified. Through our faith in Jesus and his substitutionary atoning death on the cross, right? He is our perfect substitute. He atoned for our sins. Through our faith in Jesus and his substitutionary atoning death on the cross, even though we have guilt of having disobeyed God and are inclined to sin because of our depravity and our imperfection, nevertheless, God, without any merit of our own, but only by pure grace, imputes or counts or credits to us the perfect righteousness of Christ in which he perfectly obeyed the law in our place. We, we receive that righteousness through faith when we repent and believe in him with true faith. Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and to bring us back to God. He alone redeems us from hell and gains for us forgiveness of sins, righteousness, and everlasting life. This is this idea of double imputation. Our sin imputed to his account. His righteousness imputed to ours. The judgment that we deserve poured out on him. Eternal life that only he deserves freely given to us. Our bloody rags counted as his, his white robes counted as ours. The gospel is a gift. So what does this mean for us as the church? What's our response to these amazing truths? Well, we look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... Verse 19, we see confidence. We see boldness. And remember, the confidence is not grounded in any merits of our own, but in the person and work of our great high priest who's able to sympathize with our weakness. Which we saw it Hebrews 4.15. So now, not only Jesus on our behalf, but we ourselves enter now into God's heavenly sanctuary through dependence on Christ's sacrifice believers are now qualified, they're now acceptable to God to enter into the presence of God through Christ. And again, we see at verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. So this is a surprising figure of speech at verse 20. We see the author of the Hebrews identifying the veil of the temple with Jesus's body, right? The analogy lies here that just as the veil of the temple was torn to open the way into the most holy place, which we saw in the Gospels, specifically Matthew 27, just as the veil of the temple was torn to open the way into the most holy place where God's presence is, so Christ's body was torn and that his blood would be shed to open the way into the heavenly sanctuary. And verse 21, since we have a great high priest Over the house of God. Think about this theme for for a second. Moses was in the house, Christ is over the house. Christ's authority, the greatest authority of our Lord. And specifically here, if house refers to God's temple or tabernacle, then believers are identified with the temple since they are identified by faith in Christ who is the builder of the temple. Let's look at verse 22 now. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We had a sermon on this a few weeks back about drawing near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. If this is the reality of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice, and we have the gospel now, this is our response to be confident and bold, that we would draw near with a true heart, confident access to God through Christ's sacrifice, and that we would also have this inner cleansing of conscience. Again, our hearts sprinkled clean, From an evil conscience. No more guilt. No more condemning sin. To be sprinkled clean. I like what Christ says in the gospel of John. Chapter 15. It's in verse 3. Already you are clean. Because of the word that I have spoken to you. Already you are clean. Because God has declared that you're clean it's nothing in yourself that we are washed of our sin God speaks and so it is this is a declaration that God has made and the source of us being declared clean is Christ We're sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, right? Obviously, we see this visibly signified in baptism, which is a sign of our regeneration. And this idea here, as the high priest washed his body with water in the Levitical system, as the high priest washed his body with water in preparation to enter the most holy place, now we may enter as priests into God's presence through our identification with Christ who has entered. We see at verse 23, again, what's the response? What's our response to this reality? Christ's once-for-all sacrifice, the gospel that's offered, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hebrews calls its hearers to hold fast, to our confidence and our boasting and hope, to our confession of faith. My friends, perseverance here is essential because, I don't know about you, but the present situation for Christians in these times is quite like Israel's time in the wilderness. Well, we undergo testing while en route to God's promised rest. But our hope is sustained by the assurance that God who promised us rescue and rest is faithful. We can rely on his faithfulness because he will finish what he started in us. So if this is the reality, what's our response then as a church body? We see this at verse 24 to 25. Look with me. Verse 24 says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, all and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Of course, the day, speaking about the second coming of Judgment Day. We see here that assembling with other believers in the public worship of God on the Lord's Day is a duty of the Christian life. Meeting is an expression of our faith and the hope that we have in Christ. But this isn't just some legalism, you know, get the checkbox, I was here on a Sunday. The reality is, we need each other. The church needs to meet. We need each other, especially in these times. We need to meet. I was talking to R.D. about this recently, this week, and the sentiment that I got was, now is the time. We must commit to regathering. We must sort it out, make a decision, make a plan, and do it because we need each other. I really liked what um, Pastor Burke Parsons from Ligonier Ministries said. I'm going to quote him here about this topic. God tells us that we need each other. We need to be with one another because loneliness and isolation is the devil's playground. We need community, we were built and made for one another. We were made to be together and to see one another, to shake hands and to give hugs, to give a pat on the back, to cry and to laugh together. We must gather together to affirm our faith together, to proclaim and sing our faith to one another, coming together as the people of God, not just for fellowship, not just to catch up, not just to network, not just to make an appearance, but so you might know one another. That we might show forth obedience to Christ's command that we would love each other and that we would love each other as Christ loved us. And that that would be a demonstration and a light to the watching world that we are his disciples. We need each other, especially in these times. The author to the Hebrews moves from this idea. Let's take a look at verse 26 and 27. He gives us a warning here. But before we look at verse 26, would you look at verse 39 with me? Which is right at the end of this chapter. Verse 39. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's just use that as a lens. Okay, jump back to verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And at verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So what does this mean? What is this sinning deliberately? Well, a couple things we have to remember. Christians, if we claim for ourselves that we are sinless, then we're self-deluded because we see in 1 John 1.18 um, that reality. And we also see that if we do sin, we should not despair of grace. We should not despair of the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God, which we saw in Hebrews 4.16 and in 1 John 2. So we remember that. So what's the willful sin here? Well, the willful sin here is abandoning one's confession altogether, trampling the sun underfoot, insulting God's gracious spirit. But the seriousness of this charge is indicated by its willfulness and the measure of knowledge that it refuses. We see at verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. To set aside something, right? To set aside the law, to reject it, to pay no concern to it, not to live under its authority. This is the Old Testament equivalent of rejecting the truth of Christ, turning from God to idols, complete willful rejection of God's law, really to set aside Christ. And the author to the Hebrews continues to go on here at verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. So we see here that just as in the Old Testament system, uh, to set aside the law, if that is, um, if punishment would come through that, then to set aside Christ, how much more the punishment? Well, let's think about this reality. We see this word sanctified again end of verse 29. He has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Again, we're not always talking about the doctrine of sanctification. Sanctified here to be set apart. It's all too possible to be a part of the covenant community, even to be part of the church, right, in our modern understanding compared to the Old Testament. It's all too possible to be part of the covenant community, even to be sanctified in the sense of being set apart from the unbelieving world to be sanctified visibly and externally but then through unbelief to throw away the benefits offered in the gospel it's it's possible to be part of the church outwardly to be here every sunday to be at church and to miss jesus we see at verse 30 for for we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But don't forget verse 39. We're going to get back to that. So I, we see the two quotations from the Song of Moses here showing that God is ready to judge according to his covenant. And it is, it is a grave warning that we need to remember the reality of verse 39. Let's continue to work through here. Verse 32 and verse 33. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. We see the writer now balancing this severe warning with an encouraging reminder that his readers have exhibited the fruits of grace. They have exhibited the fruits of their justification, especially by their mutual support in the face of earlier suffering. We see clearly here that these Christians suffered persecution for their faith. This is a reality. This was a reality for them, and it is a reality for us. You will suffer persecution for the truth. That's how it goes. In fact, it's promised. Christ promises it. These Christians suffered persecution But such suffering and endurance gave the author of the Hebrews confidence that their faith was genuine faith. This is the fruit of their faith, the fruit of their justification. We see at verse 34, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They had love for others, they had compassion, and they were joyful, they were content in all circumstances, even in the plundering of their material property, their temporal property, because they knew that they had a better possession and an abiding one. The better possession is Christ in heaven better possession refers to the heavenly city where Christ is and the country of God that cannot be shaken. So in comparison to our eternal inheritance, temporal property lost for Christ's sake is of no value. We see the fruits of these people's faith. At verse 35 to 38, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, Which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So we see at verse 35, again, that confidence. Christ once for all sacrifice our confidence in the gospel this is the reality through faith alone we would have confidence because he who promises is faithful we have confidence to boast in the cross which has a great reward which is Christ in heaven Christ is the reward eternity with him 36 we see for you have need of endurance again that concept so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised, eternal life with Christ in heaven. No more death. No more suffering. Christ in heaven. That we would finish the race to attain the prize. We see at verse 37, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. And verse 38, but my righteous one shall live by faith. The righteous live by faith. This is a huge reformation principle. In fact, it's the main principle. The righteous shall live by faith. To be righteous, you live by true faith. If you have true faith, you're righteous. Why? Because you believe in the one who alone is actually righteous, and his righteousness is credited to your account. Faith alone is the instrument in which we receive the righteousness of Christ, his righteousness, counted as our own, imputed to our account. So verse 39 then. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is a massive reality here. Again, back to this verse 39. Believers, true believers are not those who shrink back and are destroyed because the ones who shrink back do not have faith. They may even have an appearance of faith, but they clearly do not possess true saving faith in Christ. We see this in verse 39. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith. The ones who shrink back do not possess it. Only those of faith will preserve their souls, because they believe in the one who will persevere them till the end. Because they believe in the one who brings his saints to glory. He will finish what he started in you. At John 6:29, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. John 6.37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. John 6.39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. The righteous shall live by faith. Those who have faith preserve their souls because they believe in the one who perseveres them. The offer of salvation is on the table. His love is for us, his forgiveness is for us, and his mercy is for us. His body was broken for us, his blood was shed for us. We may know that Jesus died for us. We trust him by faith alone, and through him we will live forever. There's true assurance in that. Jesus is for you. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you so much for these realities. The reality of the gospel and the forgiveness of sin. The reality that you bore the wrath of God in our place. The reality that you lived the perfect life in our place, Lord. That through faith alone, we'd be made acceptable to God. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the grace, mercy, and forgiveness that you offer us, Lord. You are everything to us. We pray that you lead us this day, that you lead us this week, and as we come into the Advent season and Christmas, that this would be an intentional time as we await the blessed hope of our Savior, Jesus Christ, as we celebrate your first coming and we look to your second coming. You will surely do it. Thank you for who you are. We lift this up to you in Jesus' name, amen.